Let us pray. Am I, am I on? Can you hear me? Before, before we pray, let me just say that this is a strong man's pulpit. I had forgotten what this pulpit was like. In, in the church where I preach, the pulpit is like a fortress. And so I can cling to it, and you can't see my legs shaking behind it. This one, you've got to be strong when you get up here. Let's pray. Father God, you are worthy of our worship. So Father, as we come before you, a grateful people who have been rescued and ransomed by your mercy and your grace, Father, we need to know how to live in light of the gospel. We need your word. Our culture is empty. Our philosophy is dry and dead. And we can find no words to bring life anywhere other than your words. Father, may you speak your words to us this morning from your holy scripture. God, we pray that you are glorified, that your church is edified, and that the gospel is preached to the lost. So help us now by the power of your spirit. Would you open our minds and our hearts to understand your word? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 12? We will be reading verses 1. That's it. Verses 1. Have you ever heard of one of those one-verse Charlies? Um, when, when Pastor Matt asked me if I would consider coming and preaching, and he asked me what text I would preach, I, I quickly jumped at Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and I thought this is going to be easy because this is one of the most pivotal verses in all of Romans. And in the life of the believer, pivotal, pivotal in all of Scripture. And so I preached this same verse in my church uh, a little over a year ago as we've been preaching through Romans. Now we're in Romans 14. So this is Romans 12. You can see how quickly I moved through Romans. But what I failed to realize is that this verse as we're going to see, hinges on everything that Paul has been talking about, everything that God has been teaching us from Romans 1 to Romans 11. And so it was much easier to teach this in my church because we had spent literally years going from Romans 1 to Romans 11. So we have the great opportunity and challenge this morning to understand all of Romans 1 to 11 here in just a few minutes. And we see the, the power of this verse. Now, I wanted to do verses 1 and 2, but there's so much in verse 1. So let us read verse 1 together. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We're going to take it phrase by phrase and at times word for word. Uh, the first part, he says here, I appeal to you therefore. This means that Paul is taking all of what he has written so far in light of this, in light of verses 1 through 11, therefore. It's the summation of his letter to the church in Rome. This is what we call the practical application. So listen to this. If you are a Christian in here this morning, if you have been redeemed by Christ, you need to know this verse by heart. This is the application. How do we live in light of the gospel? Because for 11 chapters, this is what Paul has been explaining. He begins the book of Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And then he begins to explain the gospel. 
11 chapters of explaining the gospel. If you are a Christian in here this morning, you need to hear this because how are we to live in light of the gospel? If you're not a Christian in here this morning, then this is, again, for you to consider what the gospel is and and the kind of life that this calls us to. So pay attention this morning as we move very quickly through here. This this word, therefore, have you ever heard a a pastor or a preacher tell you that in, in Scripture, if you come across the word, therefore, you should do what? Find out what it's there for. This is, the, this is the statement Paul, again, he's saying, therefore, that means there is a whole uh, mess of important things that this rests on. This is the summation. This is, in light of all of that, this is what we do. Therefore. What Paul does is he moves from the rich doctrine of salvation, the rich doctrine of justification by faith alone. Do you all know that big word, justification? It's one of those words that we have to pay a lot of money for at seminary, right? Justification is how is it that sinners like us can stand before a holy God? How is it that we can be saved? There's this idea that you can, you can work a long time and you work and you, you do really good and, and you do all of these things. And, and then at the end, you stand before God and if you've done enough good things over bad things, then you'll get to heaven. You can be justified. Is that what Paul tells us? Is that what Jesus tells us? Is that what God tells us? No. The book of Romans begins with this right doctrine that we are saved by faith. But I want you to catch this for just a, think about this for a moment. Begins with all of this good, rich doctrine. In chapter 12, verse 1, it makes the switch between right doctrine and right practice. Let me say this. You can understand all of salvation. You can understand all of Scripture, but if it does not lead to right practice, it's meaningless. It's worthless. It's, it's going back to what we just read earlier. If you, if you know all of these things, if you do all of these things, but you have not love, it's meaningless. So we can have all of the right doctrine, but unless it leads us to right practice, it's meaningless. But at the same time, If we have practice that's not based on right doctrine, that is also meaningless and dangerous. Paul begins, he says, I appeal to you, therefore I appeal to you. Paul is begging. Begging on the basis of what? In the light of our understanding of, he says, by the mercies of God. Everything that he said before he begins, again with the gospel in Romans chapter 1, we see that God's wrath is being poured out on the Gentiles. Anybody here a Gentile? I see some of you Gentiles aren't wearing your green this morning because you're not Irish Gentiles. Uh, But God's wrath being poured out on the Gentiles. Why? Why? He tells us. Because God has been on display in all of his creation and we have rejected it. And we've, we've, we chose to exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worshiped the creature rather than the creator. And then he moves from Gentiles to God's wrath being poured out onto the Jews. Why? Why is God's wrath being poured out on the Jews? Because they have God's word. They have the commandments. But you remember what he tells them, that if you, if you follow all of the commandments, but you fall at one place, you're guilty of breaking all of them. Anybody in here ever live a perfect life where you perfectly follow God's commandments? God's wrath 
So he begins explaining the gospel by explaining God's right wrath on sinners. Sinners like us. In Romans 3, we see that this is all of humanity. That there, how many are righteous? None. How many seek for God? None seek for God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. So who deserves God's grace and his love and his forgiveness? None of us. And here's the amazing thing. As, as Paul continues to explain the gospel, remember who Paul was. Paul was one who would go and hunt down Christians so that they could be killed. If anyone understands God's mercy and grace, it's one who was a murderer and who has been forgiven of much. He goes on to explain justification by faith alone. How is it that we can be saved? Is it by our good works? No, by faith alone. By God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. This is apart from any good works. All of our good works are an abomination before God. Then he goes on and he he describes sanctification. There's another one of those big seminary words that we have to pay a lot of money for. So you know what justification is? That's standing right before God being forgiven by God. How is it that we're saved? Do you know what sanctification is? Sanctification is this process of us being made holy, being conformed to the image of Christ. Sanctification, and he explains sanctification. He goes on in Romans 9 to explain the doctrines of grace and election. He explains the doctrines of perseverance and the sweetness of providential care, that he can say that when when we read that God works all things for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose and his will, we can understand all of this. And if we can, excuse me, if we can understand all of this, then we then can understand the application. He says, I appeal by the mercies of God. A plea that's in light of the tender mercies of God that he's just expounded in the gospel. And the fact that we are justified by faith is because of the mercy of God. The fact that our sins are forgiven through the atonement of Christ is through the mercy of God. The fact that God does work all things together for our good who love him and who are called according to his purpose because of the mercies of God. The fact that before the foundation of the world, God has called people to himself is because of the ultimate expression of the mercy of God. Everything he's been explaining to this point in Romans points back to God's mercy. All about the tender mercies of God, and that's what drives Paul, driven by the Scripture, to this necessary conclusion. It is the mercies of God that lead us to the therefore. I appeal to you, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The first thing he asks us to do in application of God's mercy is to bring a thank offering to God. Remember, the sacrifices in the Old Testament, the Old Testament sacrificial system of worship, it's established on the basis of, of sacrifice. Remember the first sacrifice recorded in Scripture? We know that Adam and Eve, their sons, sacrificed their produce, animals, offered as a sacrifice. 
There was a repeated sacrifice throughout the Old Testament. And you have the temple sacrifices that are all day long, every day, once a year for all the people. And this goes over and over and over. All of these sacrifices as means of praise and worship to God. Sacrifice here in the Old Testament is always pointing us to something. We don't sacrifice animals anymore, do we? Well, that would make church weird, wouldn't it? Why don't we sacrifice animals anymore? All of those sacrifices in the Old Testament, all of the sacrificial system, all of this, is not because God changed his mind. All of it was pointing us to the one who would be the ultimate sacrifice for sin, not offered by us. The perfect sacrifice offered by God. A sacrifice that cost us something extremely valuable. In the Old Testament, you would bring the best. You would, you would bring the spotless lamb, the lamb without blemish. And the primary point is not that we should lose something, but that we should express something. Why is it that they were to bring the spotless or their best? Is it because God wanted them to lose something valuable? No, it is because the one who has mandated the sacrifice is worthy of our best. And in the sacrifice, it, it says, it expresses how wonderful and holy and worthy and mighty God is. Psalm chapter 50, verse 7. Listen to God speak to his people about their sacrifices. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am your God. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifice do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. All that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine." Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. What is he talking about here? Again, in the sacrificial system, it is, it is this covenant people bringing their sacrifices to God and they started getting in this habit of thinking that their sacrifice is adding something to God or giving God something. Is there anything that we can give to God that is not his? Is there anything that we can add to God? Nothing. He says here, it's all mine. This is like my kids asking me for money so that they can get me a birthday present. <laughs> Who, whose paycheck does that come out of? Like it's a sweet gesture, isn't it? But it was mine to begin with. This is everything that we can ever bring to God is already His. Paul here is not talking about the Old Testament sacrifice of an animal. He's talking about the sacrifice of our lives. Our bodies, he says, in light of the gospel, in light of the mercies of God, present yourselves, not your animals, not your vegetables or your grain, but yourselves. This is not martyrdom. 
but living sacrifice, to give ourselves, as we're going to see in a moment, in service to God as an act of worship. Present your bodies. Not just your physical body. Anybody here this morning? Anybody? This is your whole person. Living being. Christ gave himself to redeem us. We give ourselves to him. Why? Why should we give our bodies as living sacrifices so that we can, by our sacrifice, earn his forgiveness? No. In light of his mercy, in light of his grace, in light of the gospel, because he has done this, it is, it's going back to what we just read in the psalm. We bring to him not a sacrifice for our sin, we bring to him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. This is all that we can do to the God who has been so merciful and so gracious to us. We didn't earn this. God did this. Our lives belong to him. And so what he calls us to do is to turn around and to give this life back to him not for our salvation, not to earn it, not because we can buy off God's justice and his holiness, but because Christ has already done that in our place. We do this out of gratitude for the cross. We do this out of gratitude. Present your bodies. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 says, You, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You were bought with a price. Who owns you? Who has rights to you? You know, this is true both for the believer, for the Christian, and those who are not Christians. God is the one who has absolute right and authority over us. But as the Christian, we recognize this. We've been set free. Our eyes have been opened and we gladly seek to glorify God in our bodies. And he says, living sacrifice. This is the hardest thing. Maybe you've heard this before. Uh, What's the problem with the living sacrifice? It's like trying to keep my children still for just a moment. You ever have a hyperactive child and you just hold them for a moment and then their living sacrifice on the altar is difficult because it keeps wanting to get off the altar. But when do we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice? We come to church, we worship. We call this time worship and then we, then we leave here, go to lunch. When are we to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice? It's all the time. It begins the moment that we were redeemed, the moment we were saved. And this goes against the prevailing idea that Christianity is just add a little Jesus to your life. Christianity is not an addition religion. This is not you add a little bit of religion or add a little bit of this. You come to church on Sunday. Christianity is a total replacement, a total unconditional surrender of our whole selves. It's not a Sunday activity. It's a whole life of worship. D.A. Carson writes in his book, Worship by the Book, and the reason I read this is because I think it so adequately describes the the biblical theology of worship in one statement. Worship is the proper response of all moral, sentient beings to God, ascribing all honor and worth to their creator God precisely because he is worthy, delightfully so. This side of the fall, human worship of God properly responds to the redemptive provisions that God has graciously made. While all true worship is God-centered, 
Christian worship is no less Christ-centered, empowered by the Spirit, and in line with the stipulations of the new covenant. It manifests itself in all our living, finding its impulses in the gospel, which restores our relationship with our Redeemer God, and therefore also with our fellow image bearers, our co-worshippers. The worship of God is only happening because of what he has done to allow us to worship him through Christ. Our worship should be Christ-centered and empowered by the Spirit. Let me give you a little bit of background uh, to build a little bit of biblical theology of worship. The English language, we use the word worship. It's Uh, exclusively one word, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but there are a number of words that we translate from in the Hebrew and the Greek. In the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word histua. And it occurs 81 times in the Old Testament in talking about worship. We see this in passages like Genesis 22, verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. In Genesis 42, verse 6, I'm going to move quickly through these. Genesis 42, verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold, who was. He sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Bowed. The word histua in the Hebrew. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 47. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our Lord, King David, saying, May our God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours, and make his throne greater than your throne, and the king bowed himself on the bed. Bowed himself. Histua, worship. Psalm 95, verse 6. Oh, come and let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Kneel, histua. In the Greek, we use the, there are two words in the Greek. Proskuneo. In Proskuneo, uh, we, we see this word in Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on the turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, Chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And here we have our word, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, proskuneo. And he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, where, uh, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to, what? Worship him, proskuneo. Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Proskuneo. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, Then Jesus said to them, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall, what? Worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Proskuneo. Matthew chapter 8, Verse 2, and behold, a leper, a leper came to him and knelt before him, knelt, proskuneo, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Also, in the Greek, we have the word latreo. Uh, Pastor Matt, you can 
correct my pronunciation of the Greek afterwards, okay? Um, and this is used 26 times in the New Testament. And it means service to God. Service. You know where it's used? Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Spiritual worship. Service. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. Service. Serving or working at our worship. The old English word that we use today is worthship. To ascribe supreme worth to God. All of these words imply active participatory worship, not passive sitting in a pew worship. Do you see that the kind of worship that God has called us to is a sacrifice of ourselves? It is that we are living sacrifices to Him. It's not a Sunday. Worship is not a set of songs that we do on a Sunday morning. If it's only what we do on a Sunday morning and not the rest of the week, then we are functional atheists. There are five principles that describe worship. John Frame writes about them in his book, Worship in Spirit and Truth. And again, I give you this because it adequately describes the biblical theology of worship. Here's what he says. Worship is God-centered. Worship is never about us. Worship is not for us. Worship is about God. Boy, can you think of all the churches that have been split by the style of music because one group doesn't like one style and another group doesn't like another style? Let me tell you, any of our worship, it's not about us. Worship is God-centered. Number two, worship is gospel-centered. Again, Paul begins this, in light of the mercies of God, how are we to live? Offer ourselves as living sacrifices. The Old Testament worship was characterized by the Exodus event. God calling his people out of Egypt into the desert to serve him. In the New Testament, worship is just the same. New Testament worship isn't centered on the Exodus event, but on Jesus Christ, his atonement for sins, his resurrection, and the promise of new life to believers. Even for us, God has called us out of a slavery to sin to serve him through Jesus Christ. Number three, worship is Trinitarian. It's another one of those $20 words. Trinitarian. Gospel-centered worship in the name of Christ by the power of the Spirit. Our worship should be clearly directed toward God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our passage this morning is calling us to a life of worship in light of God's mercies, the gospel. Our worship is Trinitarian. You know why our worship should be Trinitarian? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? Because the gospel is Trinitarian. You have God the Father who has planned salvation, who has chosen a people. You have God the Son who has come to uh, be the propitiation, to redeem a, that people. And then you have God the Holy Spirit who calls those people and who gives them a new life, a new heart, one that desires to bring God glory. Our worship should be Trinitarian because the gospel is Trinitarian. Number four, worship is vertical and horizontal. It's vertical. We, we think about this. Our worship is vertical because it is to God. 
But there's also a horizontal element to our worship. And, and Paul goes on to explain this in, in the section that comes after this. How are we to interact with others? How we interact with others is a worship to God. Remember when Jesus summarized what's given to us in Deuteronomy. And what's, what, is the, what is the most important commandment? Jesus says, number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, and the second, which is like the first, is what? To love your neighbor as yourself. We see the commandments. When God gives the Ten Commandments. You see, the first part of the Ten Commandments are all about our relationship with God. And then you see the second half of the Ten Commandments are about our relationship with each other. But I would say it, it is all about our relationship with God to each other. That's why when we gather together as the church, all churches have this function. There are three primary functions of when we gather for worship. The first one is to glorify God. The second one is to encourage the other believers to train and to admonish in this body. And the third is for the sake of preaching the gospel to the lost so that we're trained up and sent out. So worship is vertical and horizontal. Number five, worship is broad and narrow. First, we're going to start with narrow. The narrow part is that worship is when we come together. What we are doing right now is worship. We are worshiping together. This is the narrow part. Now, what would you say? The preaching is part of worship? Absolutely. Singing, part of the worship. Praying, it's all part of worship. There is not one section in our time on Sunday morning that is not worship. It's all worship, even our fellowship. Outside in the foyer before we come in, our fellowship after the service, in the Family Life Center as we share a meal, it is all part of worship. And that is also the broad part. Authentic worship includes a life that is obedient to God. The broad part of life is that we are obedient to God. God condemned formal worship that is not accompanied by a concern and a compassion for others in the rest of our lives. Again, if we come in here and we, we, we sing our best on a Sunday morning and we hear a sermon and we come in here wearing nice clothes and, and smelling nice with our big Bibles and we go out and it's made no difference in our life. What we did in here was not worship. It was a show. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 says, Let us therefore be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. If we think that we can come to church on a Sunday and bring anything that's pleasing to God and it makes no difference in the rest of our life, we have not understood God. The writer of Hebrews follows the same pattern that Paul pattern that Paul writes in, in Romans 12. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaking, shaken. Let us, what's the response? Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Worship is really all about our gratitude, and worship is service. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one 
and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. God claims authority over every area of our lives. Again, this is not give God a little bit here or add a little bit of Jesus over here. I've heard it said this way, and I think this is, this is adequate, that he is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 so, says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Boy, that'll change when you go to Krispy Kreme, won't it? In everything that you do, in every area of your life, believer, it should be for the glory of God. Or else what you do here makes no difference. This is just a show if everything in your life is not lived for his glory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, I don't know if any of you are familiar. Um, we're Baptist in here, so we often don't know this. Uh, Brother Parmenter might know this one. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This is God's will for your life. Living sacrifices is a radical call that's not so radical in light of God's radical grace. I remember I was in Malaysia a few years ago and I met a man. Malaysia is a predominantly Muslim country. And we were there not too long after 9-11. And it was in this place in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, that the hijackers met and planned the attacks on the Twin Towers. And so as I was walking through the streets, you would see Osama bin Laden t-shirts. And in Arabic underneath, it would say, Hero. And I met a man in our, in our hotel who was a Christian. He, he, he said he was a Christian, but he was very quiet about it. He said, I'm a, I'm a Christian. And then he went on to tell me about his life. And from what he told me about his life, there was no evidence in his life of any kind of conversion that he just claimed to be a Christian. But really, in his daily life, it meant nothing to him. And I said, I said, brother, don't, doesn't this bother you that in nowhere in your life does it make any difference that you claim to be a follower of Jesus? And he said, it's okay, because I would die for Jesus. And I remember thinking, what good is it to die for Jesus, to be willing to die for Jesus if you are unwilling to live for Christ? Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. This is the life of the believer. This is how the believer lives in right response to God's gospel. He next says, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Christian, your life is to be holy. Your offering is not to be an offering of sin. Again, we're reminded of the animals without blemish. Christ has taken your sin on the cross. He now wants you to be sanctified. What does sanctified mean again? To be made holy. To be like Christ Paul begins by begging, in light of the mercies of God, present yourselves as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. God often rejected the people's worship in the Old Testament. 
as they thought by the action of their worship that they're somehow buying God off. But again, when you looked at the life and you looked at the nation itself, it was nothing. Your sacrifices, he says, has become a stench in my nostrils. We offer ourselves in humility and in a way that is acceptable to him. We offer ourselves to him so that the sacrifice of our praise will be a sweet aroma and not a stench. I've been watching recently YouTube. I think that'll get you in trouble, right? There are a lot of so-called prophets who will tell you what God's will is and they'll proclaim this prophecy over your life. So this morning, I'm going to do that. Are you ready? This might wake a few people up. I'm going to tell you, if you are a Christian, this is God's will for your life. Are you perked up? First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. You want to know God's will for the life of the believer? It is your sanctification. It is that you be conformed into the image of Christ, that you offer yourselves as living sacrifices, that this is your holy and acceptable worship, your spiritual worship. He says this next, which is your spiritual. Or in the Latin, it's said this way, the logican latrium or logical worship. What's more logical? In light of what we've learned about God's gospel, how else can we worship God other than to surrender all of ourselves to Him? This is not mindless worship. You realize that we sing songs in here that are hymns. I noticed that none of our songs that we sang this morning can you turn on the radio in here? None of our songs in here this morning were any of us uh, emptying our minds and just soaking in the, the, the wild music that was playing and that we were carried along by Jonas's playing. Did Jonas, you played the guitar this morning? Is that what you did? You attempted to. I think it was good. It was good. That's the best guitar playing I've heard in a long time. But we don't have a guitar player over there. None of that was meant to carry our emotions. What was it meant to do? The words that we sang, the hymns that we sing here, or the hymns that we sing down the street, or the songs that we sing, it's not meant to make us feel better. It's meant to take the truth from God's word and to plant it into our minds that we are engaging our minds while we are in worship. Because again, Paul is pleading in light of this. He's saying again, consider the truth of God's word. Consider the gospel. All of the songs that we sing point us back to the gospel, point us to the truth of God's word. And that's what stirs our emotions. We don't come to the truth through the back door. We're called to have childlike faith, but not a childish faith. Childlike in our morality and trust, but not hardened professionals in sin. In our understanding, we are called to grow up and to be mature. God's word repeatedly rebukes those who in their childish life are satisfied with a diet of milk and baby food. We must all be growing in our understanding of right scriptural doctrine so that we can grow in our right practice. Again, in light of God's mercies. Don't give part of your life to God and to think that you are worshiping God. 
Remember the gospel. Jesus is worth your life. And remember Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Jesus is worthy of your life. Remember his mercies. Remember who you were when Christ saved you. This is worth your life. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let us pray. Father God, again, we praise you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we know who we were before. We know that we've not earned anything from you, that there is no measure of good works that we could muster up. There's no measure, of, there, there's, there's, there's nothing that we could ever achieve because none of us are perfect. All of us are worthy as we see in Romans 1. We are worthy of your wrath. And oh, the mercies of your grace that any of us could be saved. And it's not by our works, but by your grace through faith in Christ and nothing else. Father, again, I pray, help us to live in light of this. Help us, help us to examine our lives and examine our hearts and to seek to grow in our right understanding of your word and our right understanding of you so that we can grow in our right living. Father, may you be the Lord of our lives. And God, I pray that if there's anyone in here this morning who has not trusted in you, Lord, that today would be the day where your Holy Spirit opens their eyes, opens their ears to the gospel that's been preached. And Lord, that they would return, that they would turn in faith and repentance and that you would give life. Father, Help us as we prepare to leave this place this morning to not just be hearers of your word, but doers because you are worth our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Our ushers are coming to collect our offerings and our tear-offs.